I'm going to start us with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise um, for the opportunity that we have to sit um, under your word. And Lord, I just ask for your blessing on this time. This week in our passage of scripture, we were told to think over the things that you have said in the word. And that in thinking over them, you would give us understanding. And so we ask this of you. We ask that you would give us understanding in your word, um, through your word, by your spirit. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us today. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, we are looking at 2 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 2, verse 13 today. So if I were to summarize our passage of Scripture today with one word, that word would be persevere. If I were to summarize our passage today with a phrase, I would have to use the phrase that Paul included at the end of this section, the ancient hymn that we have recorded in Scripture that says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is a trustworthy saying indeed. And this is the whole message that Paul is seeking to communicate to Timothy and to us today. The call to all believers that comes through Scripture is this. Persevere. Hold fast to the faith, even unto death. For in persevering, you will receive the ultimate reward. Life in the presence of the one we love. But at the same time, throughout Scripture, there also comes this warning, right? There's this tension persevere, and then on the other side is, don't deny me. If you deny me, he, God, will deny you. Jesus himself said these very words in Matthew 10, Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny them before my father. Sobering and terrifying words for us. Why? Because in all honesty, we are keenly aware of our propensity to deny, right? Those words scare us because we know our weakness. We know down deep in the depths of our soul that we, left to ourselves, cannot persevere. So the call to persevere and not deny is an overwhelming command that comes from Scripture and feels like we're being set up for failure. Except for this one thing that we need to remember. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. You see, 1 Corinthians 1.8 tells us this. It says this about our Lord Jesus Christ. He will sustain you. To the end, 
He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you hear what that text is telling us? We can't persevere, but God will preserve us. He is faithful to keep us to the very end of our lives through suffering, through hardship, through all that life has to offer us. God is faithful to keep us and he will keep us guiltless. He will keep us guiltless until the end. And he does this through his means of grace. How does God keep us? How does he preserve us? He does it through his word. He's doing that in our passage today. He is, through this means of grace, preserving us by these calls of Scripture that remind us to persevere, to keep going. By equipping us through the power of his Holy Spirit, he gives us understanding of the word. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to persevere the desire to persevere. These are the means of grace that God is preserving his people. And he does it also through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his example and through his gospel and through the hope that we have in him. These are all fuel that motivates us to obey him no matter the cost. And so this is what God is doing through the word of God, through the scriptures, through our text today. So let's look at it together and be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 15 of chapter 1 says, You are aware that all who are in Asia, let me just explain, Asia is not the continent of Asia, but it's a province of the Roman Empire that consists of the western part of Asia Minor, and its capital is Ephesus. Remember where Timothy is pastoring, where he is overseeing churches. He's in Ephesus. So it's the province that Timothy is a part of. So you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So Paul is reminding Timothy, and he's saying, all who are in Asia, all, every single person? Is that what Paul means? Well, we know that's not true of every single person, because Onesiphorus did not turn away, right? And we know, we're familiar with Paul's writings enough to know that when Paul says all, he doesn't, he's ne- doesn't necessarily mean every single individual human being that's living in Asia Minor has left him. But what he is saying, he is speaking in hyperbole to help us to understand the significance of this. Many, many people have abandoned him. Many people have been ashamed of his chains. Many people who have walked away from him, turned away. In fact, the the word is desert or made a decisive rejection of Paul and potentially led by Phygelus and Hermogenes, these two men that he names in the text, who would have maybe led others away. So we have a large group of people that says that they have deserted Paul. But what's being implied here is not that it was Paul that was actually being deserted. It was actually the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not just abandoning Paul. They're abandoning, deserting the faith. They are denying Jesus. 
These people and these men are decisively rejecting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of potential suffering, and they are denying him. Standing in sharp contrast to these men and to this all who deny is one faithful man, Onesiphorus. Let's continue on in verse 16. It says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Onesiphorus is somebody that is very familiar to Timothy. He knows him from his service in, in Ephesus. But it's interesting to me that Paul opens this up by saying, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Why not to Onesiphorus? probably because he died. I'm not 100% sure. The text doesn't actually tell us this, so I'm doing a little conjecturing. But based upon the text, it is likely that perhaps Onesiphorus lost his life because of his association with Paul, because he sought him out, because he refreshed him. And so he says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy on that day that day that they all were looking forward to when the Lord would come and make everything right. Because of Onesiphorus' faithfulness, he would receive mercy on that day, as opposed to those who denied the faith and walked away, who would not receive mercy. So Paul is in prison as a, cri a criminal, we see in verse 9. There is a couple of things I want to bring about Paul's criminal status. Paul is known throughout the Roman Empire as a leader of this sect of Jews, of Christians, known as the followers of the way. Now we've known because of the last few weeks in our study what life was like in Rome and in the Roman Empire for Christians in this time period. It was not overly pleasant, but especially in Rome. So in Rome, we know from the past that Nero uh, had set this fire and blamed the Christians. They became the scapegoat for this tragic event that happened where many lives were lost and the city was burned. And so the Christians became the enemies of the state because of this false accusation that was laid against them. There was also a law in the Roman Empire at that time, which I thought was kind of interesting. You needed approval from the emperor in order to gather with regularity. So if you were going to gather every month with a group of your girlfriends over dinner, you needed approval from the, um, the Roman Empire. You needed to have kind of like a certificate or, or a license to be able to gather, even if it was for a dinner party. So if it's something that happened at regular intervals, you needed to get a status, an approval to do that. Well, the Christians did not have that. And think about what it means to be a Christian. We gather regularly, right, for the preaching and the hearing of the word. And so these Christians that were living in Rome and in the Roman Empire are gathering with regularity, meeting around the word of God, studying the scriptures, but they were doing so illegally. They were breaking the law. This should speak to us today. 
It may be a time in the near future well, it is, well, where it would not be legal for us to gather. And what did they do? They continued to gather, to meet. We also know that the Jewish sect of people had long been accusing Christians and using the Roman government in order to try to destroy them. So all of these things and many other things were working against the Christians. And so now we have Paul, who is a known leader for these Christians, who were illegally gathering Christians who were also wrongly, but they were still believed to be dangerous to the Roman Empire, dangerous and a source of much death and destruction in Rome. And so now that helps us understand why Paul lands himself in chains, not like he was five years ago in house arrest, but now in chains as a criminal against the Roman Empire, somewhere waiting his execution in Rome. But in spite of this criminal status, what does Onesiphorus do? What does he do? He goes and he looks for him. It says he arrived in Rome. He searched for me earnestly. The word there for earnestly is zealous. So you get this picture of this man, this Onesiphorus, who gets himself to Rome. I don't know why he's going there. Is he going there for a business transaction? I don't know. Or specifically to look for Paul because he hears he's somewhere in Rome. And he begins to have to ask questions. He begins to investigate. He begins to walk the streets of the labyrinth of Rome, looking and asking questions of of people there. Now, the more questions you have to ask, the more people are going to be aware that you're there and you're looking for this known criminal, right? So he searches zealously for him. And when he found him, it says that he was not ashamed of my chains, but rather he often refreshed me. So he didn't just go visit Paul one time. He was going back day after day after day, seeking to encourage Paul and to refresh him. This is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of what it means to serve one another in the body of Christ. Here's Paul sitting in the darkness of a prison. I don't know what that looked like. Was he in a cave? I don't know. But he talks about his chains. Was he chained to a soldier in this prison? I don't know. But you get the sense by the gravity of the letter that this was not a good place. And Paul was not in a good place. He was in the darkness. And along comes Onesiphorus. And he's present with him in the darkness. Now, he may have brought him food, and he may have brought him a blanket. He may have brought him things for his physical comfort. I'm sure he did, but I would venture a guess that just this man's presence with him in his suffering, with him in his darkness, would have been refreshment that went beyond the physical, right? And we know this, ladies, in the body of Christ. This is what we're good at as women. Entering into people's darkness, sitting with them in that place. Many times we don't have words to say, and that's okay. Just bringing the presence of Christ to somebody as they're in their darkness, for whatever reason that is, can bring refreshment and encouragement. 
And this is what Onesiphorus did. So we have many people who've been unfaithful and abandoned the truth for their protection and safety in the here and now. So they're looking for comfort and protection today. But then we have Onesiphorus who abandoned his own comfort and his own safety in the here and now for the mercy and for the life that is to come. He had the long view in sight, not the here and now. And this speaks to us in two ways. How is God encouraging and equipping our perseverance with this picture? Well, he's calling us through this picture, through this contrast, to faithfulness and to endurance. And he shows us what this looks like. When we look at Nonesiphorus, we see what it looks like to endure. We see what it looks like to go into danger instead of withdrawing from danger to protect ourselves. We see what it looks like to be faithful in the face of suffering. And he also reminds us that it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Because he reminds us of the mercy that is awaiting those who persevere. But it also acknowledges, it recognizes, the text is reminding us and recognizing and preparing us that there will be many who walk away, who don't endure. Second Timothy 4.3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It seems like since the beginning of time, people have not been able to endure sound teaching. We saw it already in the Garden of Eden, did we not? With itching ears, they chose to listen to the false instead of the true. We see it in the nation of Israel. Over and over and over, they walked away from the truth into the false. We see it in the early church because constantly in the New Testament, we are being called to persevere in the truth. But I wonder if there has ever been a time in history when we have had more opportunity to accumulate for ourselves teachers to suit our own passions than today. Everywhere we turn, all day long, you have the opportunity to listen to somebody that is going to affirm your desires. Scratch that itch on your back. This is not new. One of the most heartbreaking and painful things that we have to face in the church is that of those who turn away from truth. Many of us in this room know personally the pain and suffering that is involved when people we love have abandoned the faith. They've abandoned God's word. Additionally, on top of that, we often feel that pull ourselves to turn away. Can I offer a word of hope to our hearts? Remember that God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. We have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. So pray. Pray. The call is to pray for those who've walked away. Pray for the ones who, who, that we love who have denied the faith. 
Because as long as there is breath in their bodies, there is hope. I want us to remember the picture that we have in the gospel of Judas and Peter. We have Judas Iscariot and we have Peter. Both of these men denied Jesus. Right? Judas denied him until death, but Peter repented. And that gives hope for the deniers in this room. That gives hope for us who are weak, that God, through his mercy, if we repent, we can turn back to God and he will be faithful to forgive us. Right? So if there's someone that we love that has denied and walked away, let's pray. Pray for God to stir in their hearts a hunger for the truth. Turn their hearts and bring them out of the darkness and into his marvelous life. And also we pray for others, but let's pray this for one another. I was listening um, yesterday afternoon to just a little blurb um, of Johnny Erickson Tata talking about her own struggle to remain faithful, which to me, she is just like a giant in the faith. You know, I don't think ever did she struggle, right? But she talked about how she's getting ready for bed and her husband is doing all the things that he needs to do to get ready to get her into bed. And she knew that lying down and going to sleep was going to bring about suffering. And she's being hooked up to machines and she's being um, a ventilator, all the things. And he said to her, after he gets all the things on her, he says, is there anything else I can do for you? And she says, would you please pray that my faith will not fail? We need to be praying. We don't have what it takes in ourselves, right? We should pray that our faith would not fail. Onesiphora stands out in scripture as the one who is faithful in the midst of the many who are unfaithful. And it is to, like men, to men like Onesiphorus, men who would not abandon the gospel, men who would not yield to persecution or to doc- doctrinal error, men who, like Paul and like Timothy, who by the power of the Holy Spirit would willingly enter into suffering, for the sake of Christ. It was to these men that Paul calls Timothy to entrust the good deposit. He continues in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, You then, Timothy, in light of God's call to persevere, in light of the mercy that is to come, you then, my dear child, hear Paul's love. Love for Timothy, the tenderness of his words. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We are being called to be strengthened by grace. What is this grace that Paul is talking to to? us about. It is Paul's shorthand way of just describing in one word all of God's limitless, undeserved means that are coming to Timothy, helping him to do all that he's called to do, equipping him for the work of the ministry, equipping him to suffer. This is all of God's limitless grace that comes to him 
to get him through suffering and difficulty and to make him fruitful. So be strengthened by this grace. And what is he to do? He's to take what he's heard from Paul in the presence of witnesses and entrust what he's heard to faithful men who then will take what they heard and entrust it to more faithful men and so on and so on and so on. What you have heard from me, what had he heard? He had heard Paul's preaching. He had heard his teaching. He had heard the pattern of the sound words. We saw that last week. The doctrines. He had heard the good deposit, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of things he had heard in the presence of many witnesses, and he was to pass it on to others. And this is how the faith, once for all, gets delivered to the saints. This is how it gets passed down from generation to generation through the hearing of the word of Christ. But it's always been this way. This isn't a new New Testament kind of a thing. This is what was going on in the Old Testament. Remember Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. How many times when we studied Deuteronomy last year did we hear the words, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words, God is a speaking God, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So the transmission of the faith in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is through the Word and through hearing the Word, right? Paul says in Romans 10, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy, actually. He says, but what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For in with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on them on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the means by by which God has ordained people would get saved is through the preaching and teaching of his word throughout the ages and throughout the world. Jesus's ministry was primarily a preaching and teaching ministry. And when he sent the apostles out into the world, he sent them out telling them to make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you. He is sending them out on a preaching and teaching mission. And so the apostles and then Paul went out 
preaching and teaching and entrusting the word of faith to the next generation. And this is the means by which God is working. This is the mean by which God brings the gospel to bear. And this is the means by which God is building his church. It is through the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word, testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation is worked in the hearts of the elect. It's really that simple. We don't need to be innovative in our churches today. We do not need to put on fancy shows and smoke and light and all the concerts and all the things that we do today in our church in order to reach the lost. All we need to do is preach the word of God. It's that simple because that is the power of God in saving his people. Keep it basic. And this is why Paul says in verse 10, this is why I endure everything for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those who are going to receive the word of Christ into their lives, believing it and walking forward in that so that they might attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It's through the preaching of the word that people are coming to faith And Paul is saying, I'm willing to die for that. I'm willing to suffer so that people can hear the true message of salvation and enter into this glorious eternity with Christ Jesus. It is because of the faithful preaching and teaching of the word that the elect are saved. And so it is worthy to suffer and die for. Have you ever heard the quote, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words? Now, I understand the heart behind that quote. Our lives do preach sermons, right? They do. People can see character traits. They can see faithfulness. They can see sacrifice. Our lives do preach a message. But if we never use our words, they will never hear about Jesus. They will never understand the cross. They will never know the truth about the forgiveness of sins by just our lives being nice or kind or generous. Words must be used. Our lives adorn the gospel, which is beautiful, but we must use our words It must be preached. It must be taught. It must be heard. It must be transmitted to the next generation. And Paul has entrusted this responsibility to Timothy. He has labored alongside Timothy for years and years. He has invested in Timothy's life and in his ministry. We've seen this in our study of his letters. And now at the end of Paul's life, he's continuing to do this, continuing to labor with him, and continuing to encourage Timothy. Now, what I've done with you, you do with other men. And let's pause for just a moment to marvel at God's providential hand in transmitting of the truth of his word so that here we all sit today, 2,000 years later, right? What a miracle. Every person is flawed that has carried and transmitted this gospel message from generation to generation. Everyone And yet, God has preserved the truth 
so that we sit here today and we still have the word of God. And we know the truth. We know salvation. That's such a miracle. It's a miracle and we should give thanks to God for that. And we should be grateful for all those who have come before us, who have laid down their lives so that we today could know the gospel. We could be saved. Paul, Timothy, all those in in the 2,000 years before us, And may this challenge us so that if the Lord tarries for 2,000 more years, God forbid, I hope he comes back long before that, but if he does tarry, that there will still be people sitting in rooms all around this world knowing the truth, having having the faith once for all delivered to the saints, passed down from generation to generation, May we be a generation that is willing to die if need be so that they could live with the hope of eternal glory. So persevere. Be strengthened by grace. Persevere in your holy calling. Continue to proclaim the word and trust that word to faithful men. And verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. This is going to be my new life verse. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say. If there was ever a Bible verse that encouraged us in wrestling, in good Bible study, it's this one right here. Remember how I almost always open up our Bible study sessions with how hard good Bible study is and that we're wrestling with the text and we want to ask questions of the text so that when you leave here, you still don't know the answer and you're standing in the grocery store line and you're wondering, what the world does this mean? And you're almost angry about it. This supports me in that. We're supposed to be questioning and asking God, what does this mean? We're supposed to meditate to think over, and it says that God will give you understanding. There's encouragement. You wrestle, you pray, you keep asking. He will give you by his spirit the understanding that you need to persevere. So let's think over this. He's calling Timothy to persevere to join with him in in the worthy call of suffering in the gospel. And then he uses these three examples to help support his case. So we have a good soldier. We have an athlete. We have a hardworking farmer. So what can we know about good soldiers, athletes, and hardworking farmers? What do they all have in common with each other that makes them successful in their endeavors? Well, they're all extremely disciplined in whatever their capacity is. A soldier must be disciplined. An athlete has to get up early. Not just a regular athlete, but I mean one who's competing for Olympic status. Let me tell you, their whole entire life is consumed by their sport, is it not? The whole entire family sacrifices for their sport. I had a friend from Canada whose son was in that... um, 
ice skating, speed skating thing. And they're, they're, they travel hours to get to the arena. At 4 o'clock in the morning, their whole life is dedicated to this. And he is competing at Olympic level competitions. I mean, it consumes your whole entire life. You sacrifice the unnecessary things in, in place of what the, your, your goal is. It's the same with the soldier. They're disciplined. They're developing their skills. They're fulfilling all their tasks. There's obedience in that. The hardworking farmer, if he's not disciplined, he's not going to have a, a harvest. He has to be disciplined. They all have to be willing to make sacrifices. They all have to focus on the reward. A good soldier is somebody who has love and loyalty and obedience for their commander. An athlete, it tells us in the text that he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He has to walk within the boundaries of, of the rules for his competition. He has to function with integrity. He can't cheat to get the crown. The farmer is hardworking as he waits patiently. The farmer doesn't see the harvest right away. And the farmer is dependent on the God who gives the rain. He's dependent. He is not able to bring about fruit. But he does the process of planting, of weeding, of tilling, of all the things that farmers do, waiting patiently for God to bring about the fruit. And they are all motivated. It says in the text that the soldier is motivated because he wants to please the one who enlisted him. The athlete is motivated by the crown, the victory. The hardworking farmer is motivated by participating in the fruit of the harvest. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean? What is Paul trying to communicate through these examples to Timothy and to us? That this is what our Christian life is to be. This is how we persevere. It's through discipline. It's through sacrifice. It's through a singular focus on the calling that he has given us as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ out of love and loyalty for the one who called us. And for the motivation to please the one who called us. For the crown of victory, for that mercy, and for the fruit of the harvest that is to come. And how do we do this? Like, you know, we get it. In, in some sense, but like, what does that look like as we're trying to walk every single day in the midst of great difficulty, in the midst of suffering, whatever that suffering is for? For them, their lives were at stake because of the gospel. For us, not so much, but we're still living in a world full of suffering and difficulty. So what does it look like to suffer as a good soldier, to persevere as an athlete, to wait patiently for that harvest as a farmer? in a practical way, daily. We do that by remembering Jesus. Look what he says, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. 
but the word of God is not bound. We talked about this a little bit last week. God's word is not bound. Paul may be in prison and in chains, but God's word will continue to proclaim. It doesn't matter what happens to you and me. God's word will go forth. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, against the gospel proclamation. The word of God is not bound. Therefore, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. You can count on the saying. For if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he will he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Remember, remember, remember. Remember Deuteronomy, how many times God called Israel, remember me. Why is it so important for us to remember? Because we're forgetful people. And when we forget, we walk away from God. Every time, hands down. And so we too, in the midst of our suffering, are being called to remember. Remember in a way that you are thinking it over, gaining understanding, meditating on God, on his ways, on his word, praying for understanding. We're remembering his covenant. We're remembering his gospel. We're remembering Jesus Christ. And why? Because it's in remembering Jesus that we find the strength to persevere. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, Jesus had a focus too, the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such as hostility against himself. So, listen, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In remembering Jesus, he's saying, you will not grow weary and faint-hearted. Remember Jesus. We remember his person, who he is. We remember all that he has done for us. We could spend our entire lives just remembering it and never get to the end of all that he is and all that he has accomplished for us. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, Paul tells us in the text. He is the Christ the anointed one, the Messiah that had long been foretold, eagerly anticipated through Israel's history. He is the one that God promised, and his presence shows us that God is faithful to his word. He is risen from the dead. This points to his deity. This is the Son of God. This is no ordinary man. He is truly God. He is the offspring of David. Now, this points to his humanity. He is the descendant of David, the king. It is such a stunning truth that Jesus is truly God and truly man all the way to the core of who he is. He is the Jesus that Paul preached in his gospel. He is the one who authored our faith. He gives us the faith to believe in him, but he's the one who's perfecting our faith. He's the one through the trials and sufferings that you may be enduring right now who is purifying your faith. He is perfecting it. He's doing his good work in your life, even today, if you are in the midst of suffering. Listen to what James says. James says in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
steadfastness, that perseverance that we've been called to is being produced by the power of Jesus as he works in our lives through the trials and sufferings. He is the one perfecting our faith. He is the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Who is the joy set before Jesus? What did he have in his mind? It was his people, his elect that he was going to the cross for. So he endured the cross with us in his vision. So we endure our suffering with him in our vision. He endured the cross for the joy set before him, despising the shame. On the cross of Jesus, he atoned for our sins. We have forgiveness. We are reconciled to God. Meditate on that. He gave us his righteousness. He is now the one seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. Consider him. Think about him who at the hands of sinners endured hostility. He knows what it means to suffer. He entered into our suffering. Jesus, the perfect, righteous Son of God, suffered, really and truly suffered, at the hands of sinners. Remember him. Remember Jesus, who, like Onesiphorus, left comfort and safety and headed into danger to zealously seek out his people at great risk, and at cost to himself. Remember that it is Jesus who, in so doing, is the one who brings us refreshment in the midst of our suffering. It's Jesus. He promises he will never leave us nor forsake us. And even if you can't feel his presence, he is there with you. He promised, and because he said it, it is so. He is the one that offers refreshment in the midst of our suffering. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of your enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Remember Jesus and persevere. And as you seek to suffer as a good servant, remember him. The true good, let me say that again. As you seek to suffer as a good soldier, remember Jesus, the true good soldier who did not get entangled in civilian pursuits, but with singular focus did only what the Father in heaven commanded him to do. He sought to please his Father. As you strive for the prize as an athlete, remember Jesus, the true athlete, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and is now seated, enthroned, victorious, and crowned with many crowns at the right hand of the Father. As you seek to persevere as a hardworking farmer, laboring in your holy calling, whether that be planting the seeds of the word in the hearts of your children, or planting the seeds of the word in the hearts of your spiritual children, waiting for God to do something with that seed, waiting for the harvest. Remember Jesus, who is the true hardworking farmer, who faithfully planted the seed of the word and who himself was planted in the ground at his crucifixion and of whom will come out the most great and magnificent harvest of faithful believers on that day. Remember Jesus, 
who is ultimately the reward and the prize for which we are striving for. He is the prize. He is the joy set before us. He is the reward. Philippians 3 verse 8 says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There is nothing that you can get in this life that is greater than knowing Jesus. For in him is life and life to the full. Paul continues on, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and listen, and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. As we share in suffering with Christ, we are being formed into the image of Christ. We are taking on his appearance, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, Paul says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We keep our eye on the prize as we remember Jesus and persevere in the midst of suffering. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are the only faithful one. For you can be nothing else but faithful. And it is by your powerful word that we have been called into the fellowship of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our holy calling. O Lord, sustain us to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our earnest plea, and we praise you because we know that you will do it. Amen.